This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always happy to be with all of you. Thank you for giving me some time off. I know it's been a few weeks uh, since I've been with you and we're back on schedule now uh, for our weekly podcast here. And you will get here what you can't get anywhere else, which is an American Patriot's reflection on Muslim reform, on global foreign policy, on domestic security, on the synergy of the far left and the Islamists and the red-green axis and so many other fronts in this battle for freedom, for liberty against radical Islam and other threats that coalesce. And if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Find us where you found me listening to right now on iTunes or on SoundCloud or wherever you may find us and share and find us on social media at Reform This Radio on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. This week I have a lot to talk to you about, whether it's the latest in France and Macron's administration's battle against Islamism and for secularism, whether it's the Biden administration's abandonment of Israel whether it's the red-green axis in Congress or the anniversary in Egypt, which I think is an important one that's been discussed. And also a case of a mom threatening her son because, wait for it, he dated outside Islam. And all these areas of reform that we like to discuss week to week. But first, what's happening in France? It's important to note that Macron has been talking pretty persistently about the need for Muslim communities to come to terms with laïcité, with secularism, with French identity, and the covalent bonds, the strength, the inner structure and foundations of what it means to be French. And he's drawing up contracts to reestablish what citizenship is in France and redrawing the lines, as the Wall Street Journal said last week, that separates religion and state in a battle to force Islamic organizations into the mold of French secularism. And I I keep discussing this with all of you because this is a battle that's happening here and is coming here. America cannot avoid the battle that is against theocracy and for the separation of mosque and state. Europe is ahead of us on some of these things, behind us on other parts of it. I think the American experiment has a unique leading element in how we can celebrate religious liberty while also believing primarily in our constitutional equality regardless of whether there is or should not be, and rather maintaining there should not be a faith litmus test. 
But in France, they're already to have this. They're already having this conversation. I tried to have it here when I testified to Congress, 2011, 2013, 2017, when I talked about the fact that we need to counter violent Islamism. We need to not just counter terrorism, which is a tactic, but to counter the ideology and, for various reasons, political correctness, weakness, fear, whatever it might be, Congress refused to act and simply listened. In France. The government took Macron's actions as a precursor to a much broader push to rein in the independence of mosques and other religious organizations. And what they mean by independence, they mean their ability to sort of take in foreign money, to become foreign agents for ideologies that are anathema to existence in France, to loving France, to being French citizens. Macron called it the law that he's pushing now for the reinforcing respect of the principles of the republic. The law reinforcing respect of the principles of the republic. It would empower the government to permanently close houses of worship and dissolve religious organizations without court order if it finds that any of their members are provoking violence or inciting hatred. Now, the incitement of hatred part, I would disagree with. I think when you push things underground by outlawing things that are called incitement, you start down that slippery slope that we see social media going down all the time where they're calling conservatism in America now inciting hatred because of the Trump era and their animus and hate for President Trump. And with it, they're taking the whole conservative movement with them and suppressing our free speech. And this is what happens when the government gets in the business of deciding what is and what is not hatred, what is and what is not incitement. The American Supreme Court has a significantly clear line that it talked about in Brandenburg versus Ohio about what is incitement, and it is imminent threat to violence. Look up that case. But I do think this uh, dialogue in France, the law that they're talking about, as we saw in Austria that outlawed political Islam six to 12 months ago, the bill in France would allow temporary closure of any religious group that spreads ideas that incite hatred or violence. Religious organizations would have to obtain government permits every five years to continue operating and have their accounts certified annually if they receive any foreign funding. Now, that's something I think that's extremely appropriate. Foreign funding from organizations and countries and governments that have systems of life that are anathema to ours should not be influencing our organizations or our citizens. And if they are, they should be declared FARA, Foreign Agents Registration Act. And in France, they're doing that. In Austria, they did that. The National Assembly in France is going to debate this where Macron's majority is expected, according to the Wall Street Journal, to pass it by the end of the year. It applies to all houses of worship, including churches, synagogues. But, as the Wall Street Journal says, the government's actions are aimed at mosques and Islamic organizations. Religious leaders, especially the Islamists, are all up in arms. that This is overstepping the religious-state divide created by the landmark under a landmark 1905 law. Now that act 
actually forged the laïcité France's strict secularism by barring religious groups from receiving state aid, with few exceptions, and excluding clergy from government posts. It also established freedom of conscience and freedom to practice religion within the bounds of the public order. But yet, Shemseddin Hafiz, rector of the Grand Mosque of Paris, said, we're giving too much power to the administration. Cardinal Parola in the Vatican's number two official told French television that legislation threatens the balance that was found over the course of the past century. Interesting that the Catholic Church is siding with the Islamists here. Mr. Macron says he's defending France against what he calls the Islamist separatism, which he describes as a political and religious project to create a parallel society where religious laws take precedence over civil ones. Amen. So true and such a threat. And not only is it the threat politically, but ideologically where women have half the rights of men, where, where, where certain abuse and coercion is permitted and tolerated and you have societies within societies that are insulated from influence and reform. Macron said intimidation and violence to pressure teachers, health workers, civil servants deviate from the French public's values and the Islamists use that power. And they fueled years of attacks on French soil year after year punctuated by the Charlie Hebdo massacre in which 14 were killed in 2015. They're doing it in the name of ideology. Macron's right. Now, the government is, I'll remind you, I've talked about it here before, the government is pressuring Moss to sign a charter of principles, attesting to their compliance with France's Republican values. Muslim leaders have been reluctant to sign they said it's a document that defines the scope of religious practice too narrowly. And I've seen their organizations targeted by the government. Oh, too narrowly, really? See, I don't understand why they wouldn't sign that charter. Now, on the one hand, hats off to them. They're, they're being honest about what their ideas really are. They're not dissimulating anymore because they're being forced. And many said they would dissimulate and just sign things and then continue to be separatists. Many groups do do that. We see that with often any supremacist groups from Nazis to communists to others. Now, French officials are on record saying that it was that the charter was written by prominent Muslim leaders at the request of Mr. Macron. Reformists our brothers and sisters in reform. People involved in the drafting process, however, said that his interior minister, Gerald Darmanin, played a pivotal role in shaping the charter, closely supervising a small group of Muslim leaders he tapped to write it and barring any changes from other leaders who were then expected to sign it. Oh, really? So now Islamists were supposed to help write this thing, 
And this is what happened in the U.S. So many things were signed. You look, there's these charters that came out after 9-11 with the Catholic Church and others signing with Muslim leaders and Islamists about the this new doctrine, this new sort of Vatican III that uh, it wasn't a three, but, it, but the point is, is in the, in the spirit of Vatican II, you saw interreligious documents coming out, all of which were pretty much useless. It might have made a few strides, such as the end of Holocaust denial by some Islamist groups um, and a admission of a need to counter anti-Semitism, etc. But it's still dishonest in many ways because they didn't get to the root causes. And they didn't talk about the supremacy for us of Western liberal secular democracy over Islamist states and the need to end the idea of the Islamic State. Yet, per the Wall Street Journal, Mohammed Musawi, chairman of the French Council of the Muslim Faith, says that the fight against Islamist separatism is a priority for Muslim leaders, but he disputes that mosques are spreading it. Radicalization takes place primarily in a digital space, not in the places of worship, he said. Boy, this guy is out of touch. I mean, on the one hand... He admits to Islamist separatism being a problem. On the other hand, oh, it's just coming from online. Oh, really? Which version interpretation are they dealing with where the mosques there have openly condemned the Islamism of Erdogan, of Qatar, of Morsi and his Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, or the Islamists of Jamaat Islami in Pakistan? I have a feeling the mosques in Paris are not preaching against those ideas. They might be preaching for loyalty to France and etc. But this is a, a very complex issue that can't just be done by lip service but needs deep seated reforms. Remember the neo Islamists, the Islamists who claim to be reformers but are just modernizing their Islamism, are are sometimes as simple as no longer just dividing the world into Dar Islam, Dar Harb, the land of Islam and the land of war. Now they've created this third sort of purgatory for Muslims, which is the land of contract, where you live among the foreigners, the non-Muslims, and you sign a contract that you won't be a, a warrior there, you won't be a jihadi, and you'll simply live there. Dar al-Aqad, Tariq Ramadan, and other Islamists, neo-Islamists fought for this. Ramadan now has been in and out of prison with tons of a number of accusations of rape and and uh, um, discrimination, harassment of women that were under his employ or under his instruction as students. Now, this is the issue: is that. We want a real conversation. We want to understand where the ideas are in conflict. Mohammed Musawi and his chairman, as chairman of the French Council of Muslim Faith, make some points about Islamist separatism being real, so he seems to be on the right side. Perhaps he even helped that contract get developed. But he's in denial, or at least he doesn't want to offend his constituency. And it's interesting, despite how strong Macron has been, Le Pen has tried to paint Macron as soft on Islamism, 
as an imprecise and contentious term that some politicians would describe as simply political. During a debate with Dermanin, the interior minister, Le Pen, Ms. Le Pen criticized Macron's bill as an attack on religious freedom that blurs the lines between Islam and Islamism. Islamism is an ideology, a totalitarian ideology. We can certainly separate it from the religion, she said. You need to take your vitamins. You're not tough enough, Mr. Daimin said, leaving Le Pen with a stunned expression. Madame Le Pen won't name the enemy. You are softer than we can be, he said. So I think it's clear that actually on this issue it does seem, depending on what you're looking at, that the further right is not as clear on this issue as the center right is in France. And perhaps this is all just political gamesmanship, we'll see. But at least, as far as our reforms are concerned, political Islam is on its heels and falling backwards in France. Next issue, and I had to cover this, didn't mention it in the intro, but Hani Ghuraba has a great piece this week, or uh, a few weeks ago, about uh, a Saudi, perhaps, the Saudi Arabian government's move to possibly marginalize the ideology of Wahhabism. Now, I hope he's right. For long, I can't tell you the number of times when I was on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, USERF, and the number of times we met with Saudis that they tried to separate Wahhabism from political Islam, from Islamism. They tried to say that Wahhabism is not a problem, it's more moderate than we think, it's not related to ISIS and has been misunderstood, etc., etc. And then you get with them with the details of their Wahhabi Qur'an that is translated and interpreted, or even the opening passage of the Qur'an defines Christians as polytheists, defines Jews and Christians as those that are not taking the straight path, and so many other areas of their interpretations where it says Jews and Christians cannot be taken as friends, where it talks about so many things that are fuel for radical Islam. In an April interview, Al Arabiya News was talking to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman that he noted that he intends that the government may soon look at and disregard many of the unverified sayings attributed to the the Islamic prophet Muhammad that were passed from generation to generation without any verifiable source. Unbelievable. How many times have we said this in the Muslim reform movement and said that the vast majority of radicalism in Islam comes from hadith that are used to reinterpret the Qur'an. Hadith meaning the sayings of the prophet that are then taken as fact and then say, well, this then must mean what the Quran means because the Prophet would not have said X, Y, and Z. Whether it be about women, about Jews. Hamas's charter, it says, kill a Jew behind every stone. That's not in the Quran. That's taken out of Hadith. And we believe, an honest Muslim would say that that is a false, a fabrication, a false statement. The Prophet never said that. Can we prove that he did or did not? It would be hard 
to believe in the sanctity of the morality and the humanity of the Prophet Muhammad and attribute so many of the things that are said to be hadith that are fabricated. All we can say is that in the Quran, the one of the last passages past said that today I've ended your faith for you. I've ended, I've completed your religion for you. God said to the Muslims in the Quran. So if he said that, why would then scripture continue to be passed? The earliest written down in the Hadith 70 years after the Quran and the latest three, 400 years. Seriously? Many of those are not only unverified but fabricated. Al-Salman said, Prince Salman said, uh, we should engage in continuous interpretation of Quranic texts. And the same goes for the Sunnah of the Prophet or Hadith and all the fatwas should be based on the time, place and the mindset in which they are issued. Saudis should not idolize any scholar, even Wahhab the Muslim theologian and founder of Wahhabism, bin Salman said. The changes are vital if Saudi Arabia is to remain economically vibrant, he said. He said, we cannot grow, we cannot attract capital, we cannot have tourism, we cannot progress with such extremist thinking. If you want millions of jobs, if you want unemployment, if you want the economy to improve, you must eradicate these projects for the other interest. Wow. I missed this interview in April. I don't know if you guys heard it. It wasn't covered. I mean, for the first time, I'm actually starting to think that he's actually saying the things that are genuine reform. That's reform, not their economic 2030 project that said nothing. Reform was the Abraham Accords where they recognizing Israel and Bahrain and UAE and others, and hopefully Saudi Arabia will join those accords. Biden's trying to do everything he can to make sure it doesn't happen. But these statements... For the first time, I'm, I'm worried about his security. They used to tell us when I was there in Saudi Arabia a couple times, they said, well, look at 80, 90% of the Twitter activity, social media, these, this, this sheikh, 9 million followers, this sheikh, 12 million followers, this sheikh, 6 million followers. They could raise all hell if we start going against Wahhabism. There would be a revolution. And it would be much worse. The entire country would turn into ISIS, they told us. Oh, so ISIS is related to Wahhabism. And then this conversation would stop. So now, Prince Salman seems to be addressing some of these things. Now, I think he's going to be much more successful if he sets aside the sort of mafioso, draconian approach like seemed to have happened with Khashoggi and others. If you're going to defeat Islamists and Wahhabists, you don't hand them your entire public relations portfolio by proving to be inhumane. You be humane. You do it through reform, through democracy. Now granted, Saudi Arabia is not a democracy. It's far from it. But if they're going to transition to that, they need to start those steps forward and make it clear that that's where they're headed. Salman said further in the interview, when we commit ourselves to following a certain school or scholar, this means we are deifying human beings. It's a stunning shift for Saudi Arabia, isn't it? 
Wahhabism was a main component of the constitution politics since 1932 when it was founded. Still a significant challenge to the ruling House of El Saud, as Haney talks about. Other other steps are soon to be had, but uh, you know, take a look at Haney's write-up. I think he goes into some detail about some of the changes that we might be we might be seeing. We'll follow it very closely since Saudi Arabia is essentially the Vatican of Sunni Islam, or Al Azhar might be too in Egypt, but essentially you can make an argument that as Saudi Arabia goes, so too does the rest of Sunni Islam. And then we have Shia Islam driven by the Khomeinis in Tehran, and hopefully, God willing, their defeat is coming soon. Now we've seen in the past few weeks, let's switch the page to Shia Islam now. We've seen a, a, a shift to an even more obviously and transparently theocratic regime in Tehran. What do I mean by that? How could that be? Well, for long, they had the separation of a president that included folks like Ahmadinejad and Rafsanjani and all these types that wore suits and ties and represented Iran at the U.N., but they were basically tools of the Islamic Republic, tools of the Islamic Supreme Council, the clerics that ran the show, but did so with this window, this veneer of separation. But now they had a cleric run for president, Ibrahim Raisi. He served as chief justice of Iran, and was ultimately called one of the leading hanging judges responsible for the execution of hundreds, if not thousands, upon thousands of Iranians who fought the regime. Now, why would they do this? Why would they all of a sudden shift to a complete governmental structure run by men with beards and robes stuck in the 12th century who... I think by even the most conservative estimates are hated by a half to three quarters of the Iranian population. Probably because Ali Khomeini, the supreme leader, is on the edge of passing. And they want to see the chops of who his successor would be. And I think international observers are continuing to watch this and wondering what is going on there. And I think less of concern is the veneer of some type of separation and more so of trying to see if Raisi is ready to be the next supreme leader. Now we see this further radicalization or entrenchment of radicals in Iran as the Biden administration is re-entering the 2015 nuclear accord which would have paved which will possibly pave the way for Iran to receive billions of dollars in sanction relief does a radical new president complicate these negotiations doesn't seem to be much coming out of Washington about this does it 
you think that, you know, my, I think the sweetest part of this is not that it changes much in Iran at all for the people, unfortunately. But at least it is what it is. It's going to be harder for the West and the left. Even the Ben Rhodes of the world. To make the claim that the Islamist state is non-Islamist. That it's not the most evil regime on the planet. Or that it could be or a spreader of terror. You're, gonna, you're going to have a lead chief terrorist giving speeches at the UN who was a hanging judge. I mean, that's where this country's headed right now, and it's pretty clear. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen, yeah, another radical tweet from Ilhan Omar basically comparing the United States troops and Israeli troops and the IDF to Hamas, Taliban, and ISIS. Oh, yeah, she did. Take a look at my conversation with Mark Levin on life, liberty, and Levin. And we talk about the synergy. The fact that it wasn't just about one tweet. This is an ideology, and the progressivists are now running the show with the Islamists on the far left and the Democratic Party. And again, this is not to offend any of you on the left, but the extremes are driving too much of politics and we see this on the left now the last year there are so many things we can learn we were talking about this in congress 10 years ago in my testimony and otherwise repeatedly i've compared i've talked to all of you in the united states in the west about how the islamophobia mantra that how america's anti-muslim and it's all about bigotry and all this kind of stuff when it was actually about fighting an ideology of political islam and they made Islam into an identity group. They collectivized us into a group as a minority in America. Rather than dealing with the internal reforms needed for a quarter of the world's population, through which most countries that are Muslim majority are either theocracies, dictatorships, or otherwise that are infused, instilled by a lot of the Islamic jurisprudence that stuck in the 12th century. And yet there's been this cooperation that many of our families escaped the Middle East to get out of, which is this cooperation between the far-left socialists and the Islamists. And why is it? They don't share that much ideologically, theocrats versus sort of the anti-family, anti-capitalist far-left. Well, they do. They share an animus for America, for freedom, for individualism. They share an animus for Israel and anti-Semitism. They share an animus for human creativity and ingenuity as seen through free markets. And that is what, what animates them. And that's why they work together. And then when they get into power, they then turn on each other like like snakes we saw this with Mubarak turning on the Muslim Brotherhood Assad who had Bashar Assad allowed Khalid Meshal the head of the Hamas to be headquartered in Damascus as they both whether it was the Arabism of Assad hating Israel or the Islamism of Hamas hating Israel they worked together 
the Sunni Shia conflagration and constant sectarian battle took a took a second fiddle to their anti-Israel nature, including Iran funding the missiles and otherwise to Hamas. So you see a lot of these political relationships of convenience as they joined in their deep hate for Jews and their deep hate for Israel and America. And we're seeing this with the so-called squad and the radical progressives that are now pushing an agenda that is turning a blind eye to what the Chinese do, to the threat of China, to the threat of Russia, to the threat of Venezuela and communism and socialism globally. So the Maduros of the world end up being the allies of the Khamenei's of the world. And I talked about that on Life, Levin, and Liberty. Or Life, Liberty, and Levin. Last, last this week, folks. What's happened with Syria? One of the, one of the, the many, I think, achievements that had happened during the Trump administration was some clarity on Israel. Just to stay what what we've always known about America's feeling about our Israeli brothers and sisters. And that one of the things was that the recognition of the Golan Heights as Israeli territory. Now Arab nationalists, Syrian nationalists found that offensive. And the Assadists out there found that offensive, including the Islamists. But no big war happened, no big, even even violence happened after America recognized the Golan Heights as Israeli land. It was won in war. I had to hand that back to Syria or the Palestinians. And its tactical advantage it provided, provided them would be suicide. So there's no reason to even discuss it. Well, believe it or not, just last week, the Biden administration walked back U.S. recognition of the Golan Heights. And the State Department pushed back on the signature Trump administration foreign policy decision. It won't even call the Abraham Accords the Accords. It's calling it normalization, yada, yada, yada. So, I, you know, you can't help but look and say, wow, the security of America, the security of the Middle East is being dismissed at the altar of their hate for President Trump and what was accomplished to the positive in the last four years. Amazing. This was reported by Adam Credo at the Free Beacon. Where are we going with this? doesn't make any sense recognizing Israel's control as a as a practical matter falls short of the formal policy change ordered by the Trump administration and Biden administration said it was just a practical matter no that's not what the Trump administration said and it gives Syrian radicalism of the Assad regime it gives Hamas radicalism of the Islamists fuel in which to sort of ponder what what are some territories they can get back or might be theirs. However they want to talk pre or post-67 or whatever it might be. It gives them fuel. 
to give linkage to things that don't deserve linkage, like what is the capital of Israel? Jerusalem. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's always been it's always great to be with you. I hope shed some light on some areas that general media will not do for you. And please continue to follow me online at our website at aifdemocracy.org, on Twitter at Reform This Radio, and at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-G-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and join us next week and share it with your friends. We'll be back to discuss the latest at Reform This Radio. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.